0: You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the Voice of American Law Enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue Lives Radio, the Voice of American Law Enforcement here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, 34-year police veteran and founder of the Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. This is a dark time for America. I'm referring to, of course, the events that occurred in Washington, D.C. at America's capital. I watched with stunned disbelief. There is absolutely no excuse for the behavior that was visual to the entire world. I'm not talking about politics now. I'm talking about criminality, because that's what we saw on display during this quote, protest, unquote, dozens of American law enforcement officers were injured. They were injured by mobs of people who attacked the Capitol. I don't really care what someone's political affiliation is. If you've watched this show before, you know how passionate I am about law and order and justice. Portland, Seattle, New York, Atlanta, Atlanta and every other city that has allowed criminality and protests that turn into riots. We saw it in Washington, D.C. Now, of course, there is the political aspect. What began this peaceful protest? Because it was peaceful for a a majority of the time. Of course, it was the election issues that we are facing in America. America is on the brink of something very, very dangerous. The people have divided. The people on one side of a Democratic, the Democratic Party and the other side the Republican Party. And it doesn't seem as if there are any cool heads in the leadership of either that are calling for what we should be seeing, which is, which is peace and unity and constructiveness and the ability to work together to build this country back to what it used to be. Now, this is a show dedicated to law enforcement and about law enforcement issues. But unfortunately, the ugly politics that has invaded America has a dramatic effect on law enforcement. The injuries sustained by those officers have not yet even been revealed. But I saw some of the footage. I watched with horror as people, a mob of people, overwhelming number of people attacked those officers from the Capitol Police and other agencies that were simply trying to protect the sanctity of our nation's capital. Now, I understand that many are upset over the election results. I get it. I'm not happy with it either. You know, the police are in an absolutely no-win situation. First of all, this, the, the First Amendment is something that has to be protected at all times. Who gets tasked with that? Law enforcement. At protests across the country that have ripped across this country uh, throughout this year, who is on the front lines? Who is, who is respecting the rights of the American people to have their words heard, to have their ability to protest? But those officers, who are standing the front line right now in in, in cities across the nation are put in in an absolutely no-win situation. They're tasked with allowing people to protest, and yet it is them who have to decide when the use of force is needed. And unfortunately, when they use force, when, when protests turn into riots and violence takes place, it is up to them to enforce the laws. However, what happens when you are tasked with enforcing the law as a law enforcement officer and there is no one to back you up throughout the criminal justice system? I am referring, of course, to activist district attorneys who willfully turn a blind eye to the criminality and the violence that takes place and when people are arrested, simply drop the charges. It's happening across America, it's happening in San Francisco, it's happening in Seattle, it's happening in Portland, and many other cities. So it's those officers who are literally putting their lives on the line, literally, who get tasked with interpreting the laws, enforcing the laws, trying to protect themselves physically, and then when a a piece of video shows up on the nightly news of of an officer who uses force, Then they are criticized. Then they are often uh, brought up on administrative charges by their own departments. They may even be subject to prosecution by the very same district attorneys who are turning all of the violent protesters loose. Tell me where the fairness is. Tell me what has happened to America. I don't know. What's going to happen in the future as this transition in government takes place, as we see a Biden and Harris administration take place what is the future for American law enforcement remember this the anti-law enforcement movements began under an Obama and Biden White House when the events in Ferguson took place when the uh, riots that happened as a result of those affected this country it was the biden and obama white house which weaponized the department of justice against law enforcement officers it was that administration which ended the program that gave life-saving equipment to law enforcement and now in this current environment where we are literally seeing an exodus of experienced law enforcement officers. We are seeing a incredible decrease in the recruitment to fill the ranks of American law enforcement officers. We're seeing a decline in the number from the, quote, defunding the police movement, unquote. We're headed for a crisis in America. I'm forecasting that as law enforcement diminishes in both quantity and quality which will be forced upon the law enforcement community we are going to see an even further deterioration of this nation for make no mistake about it without that thin blue line without the american law enforcement officers standing that line chaos will engulf america I know we were a little disappointed because we've had to push back the Brothers in Blue bash for a few months because of the COVID insanity. Now, on October 17th, we are still going to have a virtual Brothers in Blue bash, kind of like a tease, and we're going to raise some money. We're going to have some tremendous auction items, so uh, uh, stay listening To uh, this and go to the Facebook page, Brothers in Blue Bash Las Vegas, and get the information there. Now, March 27th, that is a Saturday night here in Las Vegas. The Brothers in Blue Bash, which is going to be the largest celebration of law enforcement, unity, and pride to benefit the Wounded Blue. It's going to be right here in Las Vegas. Got some tremendous. Tremendous entertainment lined up for you. There's going to be a, a, It's going to be a, an event to remember. Fantastic hotel room uh, prices at the Orleans. Just go to the Brothers in Blue Bash uh, Facebook page and you can uh, make your um, make your reservations there. You can get a table. You can get seats. You can sponsor all kinds of things. Check it out. Facebook page Brothers in Blue Bash Las Vegas.
1: Well, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list, and they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit ShopToTheRight.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit ShopToTheRight.com and let's all make a difference. the war on America's cities and claims of racism in the ranks of law enforcement have spirited a renewed debate on racial equality. It was Alexis de Tocqueville who reminded us, Americans are so enamored of equality. They would rather be equal in slavery than unequal in freedom. To which I say, be warned of the shiny object, America. AmericaOutLoud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, it's a fight for the soul of humanity.
0: On New Year's Eve, 27 year old Hanaka Hana Abi and another woman identified as 60 year old Elizabeth Platt were killed while crossing the street in San Francisco's south of Market District at 2nd and Market Streets. San Francisco police officers said the women were struck by a parolee driving a stolen car. Reportedly, 45-year-old Troy McAllister, who was on parole for robbery, was speeding and ran a red light, struck another vehicle, and then lost control of the vehicle he was driving, which slammed into the two women and killed them. Abby's family said that the two women did not know each other. McAllister fled the scene, but was apprehended a short time later by SFPD officers with the help of several bystanders, around 30 people, according to a witness, who chased him down until police arrived. Police found a handgun with an extended magazine in his vehicle, along with drugs believed to be methamphetamine. McAllister was allegedly driving under the influence. McAllister is facing charges of involuntary manslaughter, driving a stolen vehicle, possession of a stolen vehicle, running a red light, speeding, burglary, resisting arrest, driving under the influence, and various drug and weapon charges. Another person was reported by a witness to have been in the vehicle, but he fled the scene and has not been tracked down by police. Now, McAllister was released back on the streets despite several recent arrests, as recently as just over a week before the deaths of the two women. The California Department of Corrections issued a statement saying, in part, quote, none of the parolee's arrests following his release from prison in 2020 have yet to result in filings of criminal charges by the district attorney. Our parole office followed all procedures after those incidents, including conducting investigations and making appropriate referrals for the individual, unquote. The Chronicle reported that McAllister was arrested in July 2015 for suspicion of robbing a San Francisco store at gunpoint. He also had three other felony convictions prior to that, including one for robbery and another for attempted carjacking. On November 6, he was reportedly arrested by the San Francisco State University Police at a student housing complex on suspicion of auto burglary, possessing burglary tools, and violating the terms of his parole. His most recent arrest while on parole was on December 20th. That incident saw him arrested for possession of a stolen vehicle and burglary tools, but was not charged by the district attorney. Bowden said, quote, we referred these cases to parole because we believe there was a greater likelihood of him being held accountable and having the kind of intervention that would protect the public and break his cycle of recidivism, unquote. He also later admitted to the chronicle that he was that it was clearly a mistake to think parole supervision would be adequate. According to KPIX5, Rachel Marshall, a spokesman for Bowdoin's office, said, quote, McAllister was referred to a state parole officer after each one of those crimes, which is standard procedure, unquote. She said the state parole officials decided not to put McAllister back in jail. In a statement, Marshall said, quote, there can be no question every justice agency involved in this, including this office, must take responsibility for preventing tragedies like this from happening. We are carefully reviewing what happened and thinking critically about what could have been done differently in this case. Bowdoin said there appeared to have been a, quote, system failure, unquote, in regards to the December 20th arrest. He said police were asked by his office to place a a parole hold on McAllister, which would notify the parole officer if he were to be released from jail. Officer Robert Wiecka, a department spokesman, said the notification was made, as that is standard practice. When asked whether prosecutors should have considered filing criminal charges against McAllister after multiple arrests, Bowden said that his office would be looking at ways to avoid similar problems. In the future quote this is a terrible tragedy and when people lose their lives we can't undo the harm. and every law enforcement agency in san francisco has to look at hard at what we could have done differently bowden said the answer probably is that we all could have done something different unquote the deaths of the two women has exploded on social media and blame placed on chase of bowden and even calling for his resignation a gofundme account has also been set up to bring Hannah's brother and father to America in order to transport Hannah's body home to Japan. The mother of Hannah Abe, Hiroko, said to Bowdoin via Twitter, this is on you. Imagine this young woman as your daughter. Chessa Bowdoin is what we call an activist prosecutor. He achieved his office on the promises of, quote, reforming the criminal justice system. His parents, both convicted of the murder of police officers, served a lengthy prison sentence, and Chesa Bowden has never served as a prosecutor in any capacity any time in the past. He has created an environment within the San Francisco area that is more deadly than ever before, and yet, He continues without any recrimination by the uh, state's attorney, the attorney general of the state of California. This is a true injustice. In our next story from the Law Enforcement News Network, reporter Leah Anaya, two officers in Breonna Taylor shooting received termination letters planned to appeal Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville Metro Police Department Officer Miles Cosgrove and Detective Joshua James, two of the officers involved in the Breonna Taylor case, face a hearing this coming Monday to attempt to save their jobs. Last Tuesday, both officers were served with termination letters from the department's interim chief, Yvette Gentry, and they will speak during the pre-termination hearing with their lawyers present. Uh, This will occur on Monday as part of their due process to appeal to Gentry and explain why they should not be fired. If, after that, the chief decides she no longer wishes to terminate them, then they stay employed. If, however, she decides she still wants to go through with the termination, then an appeal process begins. If the officers decide to appeal within 10 days to the Metro Police Merit Board, after the appeal is filed, a hearing with the board is set for 60 days after that. During that hearing, officers' attorneys can again argue For their client and the county attorney's office argues why the officers should be terminated if the board which consists of five members no more than three from the same political party and including two current police officers voted to sit on the board by their co-workers votes to terminate the officers can still appeal which brings the state court brings this case to state court officer cosgrove according to fbi ballistics report was in plain clothes the night of the shooting and fired the fatal shot to Taylor. His attorney had no comment on the potential firing. Detective James wasn't even present in the incident. He uh, obtained the no-knock warrant for the March raid. In November, it was reported that James said part of the completed warrant was incorrect in what was a, quote, honest mistake. Apparently, it was written that Taylor received packages from her ex-boyfriend, Jamarcus Glover, who was then the main target of the drug investigation connected to the March incident at her apartment, which was inaccurate. WFPL reported in November that James Delbick, Jane's lawyer, argued there was still sufficient probable cause for the search warrant and that under precedent, the warrant issuing judge is not required to attest to the validity of the information provided in the warrant, unquote. Jane's other lawyer, Thomas Clay, said this week that, quote, I expect the result has already been predetermined. I fully expect Mr. James will be terminated after the hearing, no matter what the evidence is, to the contrary. We will appeal any disciplinary action taken against Mr. Jaynes, because I believe the evidence shows he did nothing wrong, unquote. Genry and Jane's termination is based on them violating two department policies. First, he allegedly failed to prepare a plan For the execution of the search warrant saying he created a quote very dangerous situation she also said that he should have been at the apartment when the warrant was served attorney clay however said james was at a different warrant execution and that there was no issue with that prior to gentry's letter clay said the people who attended this briefing we have sergeants we had lieutenants we had a major and we had a lieutenant colonel who was on the chief staff that attended the briefing and nobody said anything about Joshua Jaynes being at the other warrant location. Secondly, Gentry said James lied on the search warrant regarding the packages received by Taylor, as mentioned above. Apparently, Clay said, James obtained his information on the packages being received by Glover by Taylor from Sergeant Mattingly, the officer shot during the raid on Taylor's apartment. Sergeant Mattingly reportedly got that information from officers in another Jurisdiction. Those officers now say they told Sergeant Manily there was no suspicious packages delivered. Whether they actually told Sergeant Manily that or not is something that's between Sergeant Manily and that police department, and that's something that uh, should be looked into, Clay said. Somebody makes a misstatement here, obviously, but it was not Josh James. Clay also said, I want the public to know. We are not just going to sit back and let the chief of police do what she's already predetermined is going to happen. He feels like the department's turned on him, both the department and the mayor's office. This case has been a tragedy. The shooting of Brianna Taylor, uh, a woman who, um, was not, uh, uh, purposefully shot, uh, took place during a narcotics investigation raid. It, um, when the officers entered, uh, the apartment house, the boyfriend of Brianna Taylor uh, opened fire on them through a closed door, and the officer uh, who was shot by the boyfriend uh, received a, a gunshot injury. Uh, the other officer who returned fire was trying to drag him to safety as he fired at where the gunshot had come from. Breonna Taylor, unfortunately, was uh, standing in that same area uh, next to where the gunshot had been fired, was struck inadvertently. This is a tragedy. But the uh, uh, officers who were involved in this, uh, this investigation was uh, uh, conducted into the shooting by the district attorney's office. These officers were cleared of any wrongdoing. But because of the political situation uh, that resulted from this shooting, what we are seeing now is the administrative uh, actions being taken by the chief of police. This is unfortunately not an unusual situation. Kenosha, Wisconsin. Kenosha District Attorney Michael Gravely announced Tuesday that there would be no charges filed against Officer Rustin Shesky in the August 23rd Jacob Blake shooting. Gravely pointed to several reasons for his decision, including the fact that Blake was getting into his vehicle after telling police that he had a weapon. He was ordered by police several times to drop the knife that was in his hand, which he failed to do. Police had tased Blake three times unsuccessfully before shooting him as he got into the SUV and being in a heated argument with his fiance. His fiance called 911 to say Blake took the keys to a rental car. Police knew that there was at least one child in the car and that Blake had at least one felony warrant. The Department of Justice Division of Criminal Investigation reported that Blake admitted to having a knife in his possession during the encounter, and a knife was found on the driver's side floorboard of Blake's vehicle, which is where he was at the time of the shooting. CBS News reported Gravely said Blake was carrying a knife in his right hand and twisted his body towards Chesky just before the officer opened fire. Gravely said Chesky, another officer, and two civilian witnesses all described the twisting motion, though he said the car blocks it from the view of the video. Gravely explained that the prosecutor's office didn't believe they had enough evidence to obtain a guilty verdict from a jury against the officers. Gravely said Quote, Shesky says, I don't know what Blake is going to do. Is he going to hurt the child? Is he going to take off in the vehicle? Are we going to be in a vehicle pursuit with the kid in the car? Will he hold the child hostage? Unquote. A medical examiner who usually conducts uh, autopsies reviewed Blake's seven gunshot wounds. The examiner said that the three wounds on the left side were consistent with the twisting motion alleged being made towards Officer Shesky. Gravely said that the Wisconsin Department of Justice hired an outside use of force expert. This expert also said Shesky's actions were reasonable. Blake's family is reportedly outraged by this conclusion. His father, Jacob Blake Sr., urged people to, quote, stand up and make some noise, he said. Let's be heard around the world, unquote. The family believes Officer Shesky should be going to prison for attempted murder. They will be filing a civil suit in the near future, according to their attorney. Local authorities had requested the National Guard to be activated on Monday prior to the announcement, which Governor Tony Evans did. 500 troops were sent into the city in preparation for potential unrest on violence. There was also a state of emergency declared, which allowed the city to enact a curfew. Fencing was set up around the courthouse and businesses boarded up their windows as well. The three officers involved, Chesky and officers Vincent Arenas and Brittany Moronic, remain on administrative leave. This, uh, This shooting of Jacob Blake made national news and inspired, shall we say, more and more violent protests throughout America. The videotape was taken by a bystander who, uh, who from across the street took the video on his cell phone, uh, it is very clear that the officers attempted to use a number of different methodologies in order to take him into custody. So let me try and explain how that in- interpretation is important to what the district attorney's decision was. So when, when a police officer places someone under arrest, um it is it is the duty of the citizen to comply to that arrest from state law and statutes of course you're under arrest it is it is your responsibility to uh allow that to take place if that does not happen then the police are uh obliged to use whatever um uh force is necessary to effect that arrest and that was unsuccessful you can see them struggling trying to get him into, into handcuffs wasn't happening. So then they used the next level of force, which was their taser device. They tried that three times. That didn't work. Many people think that the taser is the epitome of how to take someone into custody with, uh, uh, and it works all the time. And it's not true. The unfortunate reality is that that uh, either either the, prongs that are, that are utilized and shot out of the device don't hit the way they're supposed to, or in cases where someone is, is heavily under the influence of certain drugs, they simply uh, power right through it. In this particular case, this, uh, the officers tried three times to take him into custody using the taser. That didn't work. Suddenly, he had uh, um, a knife in his hand during that procedure. He, uh, he reached and he, he pulled a knife uh, from his body. And when the officers saw that, then this levels the, uh, or raises the level, if you will, of, of fear because a weapon, uh, a knife is a deadly weapon. He continued to fight. They tried to get into the car at that which point the officer saw the knife in his hand, trying to take him into custody. Uh, he felt that he was in fear for both his own life and the life of the child who was in the car, should he make an escape? And he opened fire and he shot and and uh, wounded uh, Jacob Blake. Um, this situation then resulted in massive rioting, uh, even though this shooting was was uh, a justifiable shooting because of the the uh, uh, social temperature, if you will, that is um, um, increasing in this country. Let's talk about a little good news for change. I think I think we're going to end today's broadcast on on some good news. Good Samaritans save a North Carolina deputy after a fiery crash. This was in uh, Bertie County, North Carolina. A group was heading down on Eastern North Carolina Road when a car careened off the pavement and slammed into a tree. The uh, they saw the police car. Uh, smoking and they jumped into action last week to save the on-duty Birdie County deputy who was inside the burning vehicle. Rashid Lee told McClutchy News that he went towards the car, saw the deputy trying to get out. Just as bystanders pulled his feet out, the car became engulfed in flames. Videos po- uh, posted on Facebook shows a car ablaze after the man was rescued. What a crazy way to start off the new year, but I'm happy to be uh, blessed by someone, by saving their life, Dejour Kimer wrote in his uh, post caption. Now, he and others said that they were traveling to the town of Lewiston-Woodville on New Year's Eve when the group saw the deputy's cruiser turn on its lights and make a three-point turn. With the way it had rained, it was very wet and he was not able to get the car back on the road and the car struck a tree he caught on fire, said Bertie County Sheriff John Holly, according to the uh, Bertie Ledger advance. Holly said the deputy was injured and taken to Viden Medical Center in Greenlee, approximately 85 miles east of Raleigh. North Carolina state troopers were expected to investigate the crash. I don't know about you, but if you love coffee, you're going to love Law Dog Coffee. Law Dog Coffee Company, yes indeedy, this is amazing coffee. It's been uh, in the family of uh, uh, brewers for 90 years, but this particular brand is is uh, created just for us. So if you love coffee, you're going to love Law Dog Coffee, especially because not only is it phenomenal coffee, it's, it's uh, uh, roasted in a, in a family-owned roasting company, it's been around for 90 years. And it is delicious, but it also goes to help the, uh, the company, Law Dog Coffee Company, gives a percentage of its income to thewoundedblue.org. In fact, they sponsor the canine companion program for the Wounded Blue. So go to lawdogcoffee.com. It gets delivered directly to your house. It is phenomenal, and it tastes so good it ought to be illegal.
2: Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older. Until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampappa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code loud for an exclusive discount or call
0: 844-869-9958. With me today in the interview room of the Voice of American Law Enforcement is a very special guest. He's got something very important to talk about. Let me give you a little bit about information about Derek Maltz. He served as special agent in charge of the United States Department of Justice Special Operations Division for 10 years in New York City. Uh, He held the uh, position of Chief of New York Drug Enforcement Task Force, which is the oldest and largest drug task force in America. I could go on about his pedigree, but I think you get the idea. Derek, thanks so much for coming on to The Voice of American Law Enforcement. Randy, thanks for having me, buddy. I appreciate it. I, I don't want to get too much into your background, but just give a quick summary of of, uh, you know, the important highlights of your career. And then let's talk about your your uh, your thought processes on what is an insidious um, actual attack on America.
3: So, Randy, my father was a career DEA agent for 30 years. He ran the New York City Drug Enforcement Task Force with the NYPD and the state police I came on to DEA as a young kid out of college. I worked uh, my way up. I eventually took my father's job uh, in the task force as the chief. But ultimately, I was promoted, and I was brought into an operation in Washington uh, called the Special Operations Division. It's a DEA division responsible for synchronizing and coordinating the global efforts of about 30 agencies, uh, Department of Defense, Intel community, and law enforcement. But we also had the uh, uh, British-UK National Crime Agency. We had the Australian Crime Commission and the RCMPs from Canada. And I was very proud of my relationship with the NYPD. So we added them as a partner as well. So I worked there for about 10 years. I was very, very fortunate to be in the hub of the DEA's operational center. And by being there, I had a very unique perspective of what's going on in regards to transnational crime and threats to our country,
0: I think that if anyone was in a position to know, it would be you. Now, um, you have you have spoken very passionately about what you feel is a is in essence a uh, the threat from China and its uh, um, being allied with Mexican cartels as it affects as it affects the people of the United States. Um, I've heard you speak about it. It it sent shivers down my spine. If you would, let's talk about that now, and let's give our viewers some insight on what is happening uh, uh, through China, the Mexican cartels, and to our people here in America. Okay, so first of all,
3: Randy, thank you for having an interest in the topic because it's not a public health crisis that we're dealing with with the drug crisis, we're dealing with a national security matter. So, as you know, and you probably have heard, the CDC just reported the most recent statistics. Uh, there were 81,000 Americans who died from drug overdoses, ending the 12-month period of May of 2020. And the people are really not sure why this is happening. It's happening because China has formed a lethal partnership with the Mexican cartels. And China is getting way more involved with making these synthetic chemical compounds that are being mixed in with other drugs and also being sent to the uh, cartels for redistribution throughout our country. So so to give you an example, like let me just back up and tell you, China's role with the cartels dis- didn't begin recently. They've been involved in providing the chemicals For the methamphetamine production but what's unique randy is that right now we're seeing unprecedented levels of methamphetamine coming into the country we're seeing huge increases with massive amounts that's because the cartels have super labs industrial sized labs in mexico where they're capable of producing seven tons of meth every three days so china has built up a long-standing relationship with the cartels and most recently, probably starting around 2007, 8, 9, in that range, they started messing around and sending fentanyl that is being made from these, uh, in these labs in Wuhan, China, where the Wuhan virus came from, and other labs. And they're sending this very powerful, deadly chemical fentanyl into the country directly, but they're also sending it to the cartels. So to give you an example, the cartels can buy one kilogram of fentanyl for four to five thousand dollars, but they can yield about two million dollars when they mix it in other substances like heroin or even methamphetamine, sometimes cocaine. But so the cartels have recognized well, let me ask this is a way hold, to make more money. This.
0: Hold on just one second. So what what is is fentanyl exactly? What I mean. I understand that, you know, the chemical compounds change, but what is fentanyl? Does it have any legitimate uses?
3: Yes, it's it's opioid. It's a synthetic opioid. And it obviously is very important if you're in a hospital and you have serious pain uh, under a doctor's care, you could be, you know, prescribed uh, fentanyl, which is really, really potent. Right. So it will help you if it's properly prescribed. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is illegal manufacturing of synthetic fentanyl being sent to the cartels. There's no quality control. There's no FDA approval. It's just a bunch of thugs, a bunch of cartel members mixing mixing it in powder that's being sold in America. But what they're also doing, Randy, which is causing a lot of the deaths, is they're buying pill presses and they're mixing this stuff and making these what they call mexi oxy. They're known as the blue pills on the street. So they call it Mexi-Oxy-30 pills, right? And these pills are being sent around America and young kids are taking these pills thinking they're getting Oxycontin and they're getting pure fentanyl and they're dropping dead instantly. So it's becoming a crisis. But the, the, the Chinese are also involved in mass amounts of other synthetic drugs like K2 and spice, known as synthetic marijuana, synthetic cannabinoids, also bath salts. They're making these chemicals and they're sending them to our country, and people are getting really sick. They're having uh, respiratory uh, issues. They're having kidney issues, kidney failure. They're having heart attacks. They're dying. And it's all these chemicals coming from China, and they're making billions. But, Randy, probably the most disturbing piece from my point of view is they're also now the leaders in the money services businesses for the cartels, which nobody realizes. That just happened over the last you know, few years. And they're very, very smart on how they're doing it. They're using encrypted apps, and they're using Chinese banks to move money, and they're bypassing any type of cash transactions in the U.S. banks because that's a way where they're going to get caught. They know that. So it's a very elaborate system, and as a matter of fact, they're using the casinos in Las Vegas, and they have many, many schemes. But it's growing daily, and that's why the deaths are escalating big time.
0: So, I mean, you're talking 81,000 overdose deaths in just a year's period. It's an astounding number. And we're seeing not a decline of this number nationally. We're seeing an increase. Why do you think, I mean, why would they, they basically, in essence, poison their own customers? What's the, what's the purpose behind that? Great question. So let me just give you some background.
3: We know for a fact, because we've interviewed people that were high level Taliban drug kingpins from Afghanistan that basically called it a jihad against the West. They know that if they send this pure fentanyl and this pure heroin into America, they're going to harm Americans and they're going to kill Americans and they're going to destroy families. And that's part of the Communist Party of China's overall unrestricted warfare to go after america they can't do a direct military assault on the country so they're going to use all tools in their arsenal to undermine to to totally destabilize our our country and they're watching this from many many miles away and they see the resources they see the chaos that it's create creating so they really don't care about the finances behind it yeah some of the chinese organized crime groups They want to make money, but the Chinese government wants to destroy their adversary. They want to undermine the superpower of America, and that's what this is about. Now, the cartels, on the other hand, they're strictly in this business for profit. And as you know, and as you've seen with the Sinaloa cartel and Chapo Guzman, one of the world's richest guys, who's now in U.S. prison, I mean, they make billions of dollars running these drug uh, cartels. So... Yeah, there's a big profit motive as well. But the Chinese are trying to destroy their adversary.
0: So in in essence, what this is, is a is a it's a chemical attack on America.
3: In my opinion, the Chinese have weaponized America's drug addiction as they continue to drive towards destabilizing our society. That's what they're doing. And so, you know, it sounds kind of far fetched. It sounds kind of you know, overreaching. But think about it. Go read and research a communist party like China's plan. They want to undermine superpowers, right? And they're not going to be able to do it with a direct military attack. That's why they're hacking our, our computer systems. They're stealing our identity. They're all in our country, all over the place. But now they're moving billions of dollars of drug cartel money. I just learned this over the last couple of years. They're coming into America and they're buying really expensive real estate in like Oregon, Washington State, uh, you know, different states that have legalized marijuana. And they're buying these houses for the purpose of establishing these massive marijuana grow operations. K2 and Spice, we had a couple years ago in the summer of 18, we had a situation where we had people walking around America like the Night of the Living Dead literally dropping in Washington, D.C., in New Haven, Connecticut, in Chicago, because they were putting rat poison inside the synthetic drug K2. So the kids are smoking this stuff, and they're not smoking synthetic marijuana. They're smoking poison. That contributed to the opioid addiction to the country. But now it's the Chinese and the cartels.
0: So the cartels are making billions of dollars uh, through, their, through their illicit business. The Chinese are not only laundering the money, but they're making billions of dollars, and Americans are dying in the streets. Uh, What's the answer here? Is is the government—I mean, you work for the DEA. Is the DEA uh, working to try and eradicate this issue?
3: This is where we have to get all the resources of the U.S. government, the DOD, the intelligence community— The federal law enforcement agencies to start working more as a team. We need to shut down the delivery of all the fentanyl over the Internet right into America. And we also need to stop the money flow. And the money flow is huge. And that's becoming more complicated because the way the Chinese are involved now, moving money from one bank account in China to another. But what they'll do is they'll transfer the 500 grand over Chinese banking apps from one account to another. So they successfully moved $500,000 out of their personal accounts in China to other accounts in China. And then they'll buy goods and they'll sell goods. They'll move goods from China into South America. And then the Colombians, the Mexicans, whoever, in Central America, they'll make their money on the the legitimate goods, right? Trade-based money laundering has been around forever. So it's becoming much more difficult to penetrate these, these new types of groups with the Chinese nationals. So the government leaders have to be way more involved. If you prioritize your threats, your national security threats, you have to have accountability on people working together. And that was part of my job. So I'm very well versed on, you know, information sharing and people not working together.
0: Our country is, is facing a lot of serious issues right now. Even as we speak, there is, there is a massive uprising in Washington, D.C. So we now have a new, a new administration coming in. But under, under the Obama administration is when much of the groundwork for this terrible situation took place. So <coughs> now we have an entirely new administration coming in. With them, they bring their own people to head up the Homeland Security and other and other affected um, uh, parts of the, of the government. How is this transition? Do you think going to affect the uh, the ongoing investigations into this this crisis?
3: Well, there's multiple problems. Let's start
0: off with the easy
3: the the easy ones. Defunding the police initiative. Just that alone is so ridiculous and is just so, so problematic, right? But then you're looking at the open borders, right? All of these cartels, they're blitzing our country every day with their poisonous products, but they're also sending in their manpower to do the job, to deliver drugs, to pick up money, to kill people, to intimidate people. So open borders is really problematic. Then they want to shut down ICE, as an example, because they don't even understand that ICE doesn't just do the job of immigration. ICE has a very, very competent agency called Homeland Security Investigations, HSI, that goes out every day and puts child molesters in jail, shuts down human trafficking rings, shuts down drug trafficking rings and other types of frauds and counterfeit goods. So there's a lot of problem areas, Randy, terrorism, cocaine operation with Hezbollah and the Mexican cartels. It was known as Project Cassandra. This is another country like China trying to destroy us. And you have really bad people, these special interest aliens that, that are going to line up to cross into our country to destroy us forever.
0: I mean, you paint a very bleak picture, Derek, a very bleak picture indeed. Uh, this sounds like we're going to be fighting this battle for years and years to come. And there's, there's literally scores of American lives at stake here not to mention the very security of our nation.
3: We talked about fentanyl and stuff, but just look at the methamphetamine seizures in December, 2,500 pounds, 1,900 pounds. Then we had 3,100 pounds in LA. So again, when you ask about what we can do, you got to shut down the chemical flow. Without the chemicals, you can't make the drugs.
0: You know, b- before we go, there's one, there's one thing that popped into my head. You have the legalization of marijuana taking place all over the nation now in oregon i believe it is they just legalized um, cocaine and methamphetamine if i'm correct how does this uh, acceptance of drugs how is this going to um, affect this continual insidious attack on us
3: these drugs are Schedule One and Schedule Two drugs under federal law. And so we're, we're not sticking to law and order. And that's a big problem in the country right now. By the way, Randy, I don't know if you knew this, but one kilogram of fentanyl can kill 500,000 people. Think about that. It's 2.2 pounds, right? So what would happen if Al-Qaeda had 2.2 pounds of some chemical weapon sitting in Mexico? You think the U.S. government would just sit back and and do nothing. This is what we're talking about—a chemical attack.
0: That's really you put you put things in into deep perspective with uh, when you with that analogy, Derek. But once again, thanks for taking the time to to come on to the show. And uh, I have a feeling you and I will be talking again very soon. One of the most important things that you can do as either a, a law enforcement officer, or someone who supports law enforcement, is to help injured and disabled officers. How? by simply going to this website, www.thewoundedblue.org. TheWoundedBlue.org. And why should you do that? Well, first of all, because I founded the organization. Do you need any more than that, really? So this organization provides tremendous assistance and support to officers who've been injured either physically or emotionally in the line of duty. Uh, We have a phenomenal... Um, documentary film. If you go to Amazon.com and look at uh, The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. Also on uh, YouTube, if you go to our YouTube channel, Wounded Blue TV, check out our series, The Voices of the Blue. You want to do everything you can to help these men and women who sacrificed so much for their communities. Go to www.thewoundedblue.org. End of Watch with Randy Sutton. As 2021 enters, um, unfortunately, I have more names to read for this section called End of Watch. The first is police officer Kendall Blackburn of the Lebanon Police Department in Missouri. Police officer Kendall Blackburn died from complications as a result of contracting COVID-19 from an exposure while on duty. Police Officer Kendall Blackburn, Lebanon Police Department, Missouri. End of Watch, Monday, December 28th, 2020. Sergeant Bruce Watson of the Harris County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Sergeant Bruce Watson was killed in a motorcycle crash near the intersection of Shadow Creek Parkway and Kingsley Drive in Pearland. He had just completed a funeral escort when his department motorcycle collided with an SUV. He was flown to Memorial Hermann Hospital, where he succumbed to his injuries. Sergeant Watson was a United States Army veteran and has served with the Harris County Sheriff's Office for 20 years. He is survived by his wife, three children, and grandchild. His wife serves with the Houston Police Department. Sergeant Bruce Watson, Harris County Sheriff's Office, Texas. End of watch, Saturday, January 2nd, 2021. And the third officer, is Sergeant Daniel Mobley of the DeKalb County Police Department in Georgia. Sergeant Daniel Mobley was struck and killed by a vehicle on I-75 near William Street in Atlanta at about 9 a.m. while on the scene of a previous crash uh, involving another DeKalb County uh, Police Officer. Sergeant Mobley has served with the DeKalb County Police Department for 22 years. Sergeant Daniel Mobley, DeKalb County Police Department, Georgia end of watch saturday january 2nd 2021 these officers gave their lives in the line of duty serving their communities may they rest in peace thanks for joining me this uh episode of blue lives radio the voice of american law enforcement here on the america out loud network i hope you enjoyed as we do every week we talk about the things that affect law enforcement officers around the country one thing i would ask of you is check out the website for thewoundedblue.org. This is the National Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. We'll see you again next episode.